good morning. If you will, open your Bibles to Mark chapter 9. Going to be reading from verse 30 to 41. And really, if we could do all this section, I, this section begins in verse 30, but it ends in verse 50. So we're not going to be able to address it all this morning, and that's okay. Uh, it's going to be another two weeks, actually, before I address you again and be able to finish this. Uh, so hopefully you can be paying attention, listening, because it's going to be another two weeks before we actually come back into Mark. But what Mark is doing here, starting at verse 30, is he's focused on what we should always be focused on. Jesus often is, when throughout his ministry, walking, teaching his disciples, and they're really enraptured into what he has to teach them and the wisdom that he's dispensing to them. But they don't like it when he gets back to the cross, when he teaches about his own death and resurrection that is absolutely crucial to his message. We need this as well. We need to be listening and understanding what Jesus says about his mission, his death and resurrection, and all the different implications it has on us as his disciples. Let's pick up and read at verse 30 of Mark chapter 9. This is the holy inerrant word of God. They went on from there and passed through Galilee, and he did not want anyone to know. For he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days, he will rise. But they did not understand the saying, and were afraid to ask him. And they came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he asked them, what were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent. For on the way they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. And he sat down and called the twelve. And he said to them, If anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. And he took a child put him in the midst of them, and taking them in his arms, he said to them, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. John said to him, teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him, because he was not following us. But Jesus said, Do not stop him, for no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able soon afterwards to speak evil of me. For the one who is not against us is for us. For truly I say to you, Whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose 
his reward. If you've been coming to Evergreen, I think that you started to notice a pattern occurring. And this pattern starts in Mark chapter 8, verse 31, right after Peter confesses that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. The whole first half of the book of Mark was leading up to that point about convincing you as the reader that Jesus truly is the Messiah. All of his miracles pointed to this. All of his teaching was about this fact of his identity. But a shift happened halfway through Mark's book. The disciples came to the right conclusion. Jesus is the Christ. And immediately Jesus' response to this was to predict his future death and suffering and his future resurrection. What happens immediately after that? Well, the disciples don't understand it. And then Jesus uses the opportunity to teach them about the nature, not of his death in that moment, but on the implications for them about the nature of true discipleship. They don't understand that the king of glory has to die and actually came for that reason to die on the cross. And Jesus uses the opportunity in Mark chapter 8 to say, well, if you think it's bad that I've come to die, guess what that means for you? That the path to glory is through suffering, self-denial. That's exactly what we have here in Mark chapter 9. It's the second prediction of his death. And it follows that same exact pattern. Jesus predicts his death and his suffering. They don't get it. And then he uses it as an opportunity to teach them about the true nature of discipleship. In this section, this kind of middle part of the gospel of Mark will, won't come to completion until the end of chapter 10, where I bet you can catch the role. Jesus will predict his death and his suffering and his future resurrection. They won't get it. And then he'll teach them about the nature of discipleship. And the thing important for us today to understand is that that lesson about discipleship is something that's compounding. He's building upon his, te his previous teaching. And in here, if the lesson was in chapter 8 was that the path to glory is through suffering. And that path to glory involves self-denial. What we have here in Mark chapter 9 is Jesus going from his predicted death and resurrection to teaching them about this and summarized in verse 35, that if anyone would be first, he should be last of all and servant of all. And really, if we think about this, this is just a practical outworking of what it means to live a life of self-denial. That you put yourself last in service to God and service to fellow man. Serving God for his glory and serving others. That's the heart of Christian discipleship. What it means to be a disciple of Christ. And here, the title of the sermon is How to Become Truly Great. 
Because when the disciples get into this argument about who's the greatest, instead of Jesus rebuking them for their ambitions for greatness, instead he uses it as a teaching opportunity to say, you want to be great? Good. I want you to be great too. And here I have outlined, and this is in the back of your bulletin, I have a fill-in-the-blank outline so you can follow along. There's four steps that Jesus presents us with in how to become great in the kingdom of God. That's the focus here. We start off with this prediction. We, we come across something that is not really normal. The disciples are not normally reluctant to ask for clarification about Jesus' teaching. I'll just throw out some verses. Mark chapter 4, verse 10, 7, 17, even 9, 11, earlier in the same chapter, are all examples where when they, Jesus was teaching something, they asked for clarification. Why are they not asking for clarification? Well, we're told in verse 32 that the reason is, is that they're afraid to ask him. And if you're confused about this, Realize that each time that Jesus is giving a prediction of his death and resurrection, he's giving a new detail. In Mark chapter 8, he told them that he was going to die and rise again. It was all new to them at that point. But here he repeats the same prediction, but he adds a phrase in verse 31. He says that the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. And that word there, delivered, is the same word as betrayed. Jesus predicted that he was going to be betrayed. And the disciples were afraid to ask, well, it could be that they, the same reason why Peter was rejecting it earlier, that they didn't want the Lord of glory to die. But they've already learned that some of these implications and some of this teaching about Jesus's death and resurrection had direct implications for them. And I can actually sympathize with the disciples here at this point when, they, when Jesus says he's going to be betrayed, that they don't really want to go any further into this. Remember on the night when Jesus is betrayed at the Lord's Supper, he says that one of you is going to betray me and deliver me over to the Pharisees. And all the disciples at that moment were asking, is it me, Lord? The disciples here are afraid. But their fear does not cause them, their fear is not really one of too much wisdom. Because they get into a certain discussion amongst themselves. One that they didn't think that Jesus was going to overhear. And Jesus, at the end of this walk, after telling them about the prediction of his death and resurrection, he shows them how not to be great in the kingdom of God. That's step one. The, step, the first step, if you want to become great in the kingdom of God, is to know what not to do. And what you don't do is the very counterintuitive thing, which is promote your own interest. Or, in the words of this outline, do not seek it out for yourself. Don't seek greatness for yourself. Which is exactly what the disciples are discussing. And Jesus, when they get to a house, Jesus asked them what they were discussing along the way. Because he knew that they were arguing with one another about who is the greatest. 
you know, this kind of unveils a certain problem that's in the disciples, one that we actually see in all three predictions. It's the problem of pride. We tend to think about pride, rebellion against God, wanting to do things our own way as a problem, a sin that's completely outside of the church, that we see in other people very obviously. But it's not a problem that we tend to associate with Christians. We, we're called to be humble. How many times did the Bible have to say that God is opposed to the proud but gives grace to the humble? How many times does he have to say that for Christians to get it? I find it really interesting at this point that after each set of predictions, who's the person that Jesus has to rebuke? The first person Jesus has to rebuke is Peter. Here we'll see that he rebukes John in verse 38. And in chapter 10, when this same discussion resurfaces, we'll see that James and John will be rebuked because here they weren't able to settle the discussion about who's the greatest, but they'll get their moms involved later in chapter 10. And their moms will really help them out, go to Jesus and try to circumvent this whole situation to make sure that their sons, James and John, are number one in the kingdom of God. Who are these three men, Peter, James, and John? These are Jesus's inner circle. These are Jesus's closest friends. These are the people who just recently, at the beginning of chapter 9, saw the transfiguration, saw Jesus' glory, were given a very special privilege. We have to be really aware at this point, dear Christian. You know what often accompanies pride? is privilege. The more privilege you have, the more susceptible to pride you are. Which child do you think is going to be the most arrogant or prideful, at least tending in that direction? Is it not children who have everything given to them, who have no wants, have no needs? There's something about riches of privilege, and even here, even more so, spiritual privileges that tend to make us think that we're better than other people, that somehow the reason why we have privileges is because we're more important because we really are better. It's at that point, we just have to say, what gave Peter, James, and John the privilege of going on the Mount of Transfiguration was not because they were better than the rest of the apostles. And the reason why anyone's a Christian in this room who does believe and follow after Jesus Christ, it's not because you're better than your neighbor who doesn't. The only distinguishing difference between an unbeliever and a follower, between those who are further ahead in sanctification and who those who are farther behind is God's free gift, God's gracious work. All the privileges that we have, we have as a free gift from God above. That should be something that humbles us, but it's not something that we see humbles the disciples. And Jesus turns and immediately seeks to make sure that they want to be great. Well, Jesus does too. He wants them to be great. But if they're going to be great in the kingdom of God, they need to have this sort of 
spiritual elitism fixed, resolved. They need to come to this understanding that their life and their position is one of privilege of God's grace. And his remedy to this is to first this spiritual form within is to realize that they need to have a servant's heart. Step two, not just do not seek glory for yourself, but if you want to be great in God's kingdom, be the servant of all. This is this general principle that Jesus is laying out to become a servant of everyone. If you would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. This remedy that he's appealing to is one of humility. One that is, uh, this is from Matthew Henry. Matthew Henry says a short definition of humility is one per, is a person who neither claims personal merit in the sight of God nor proudly despises his brothers or aims to be superior to them, but considers it enough that he is one of many members of Christ and desires nothing more that the, than that the head alone should be exalted. You see, this is what's being modeled for them in the life of Christ himself. Turn over to chapter 10 for a moment. Just we're going to glance at verses 42 through 45 of Mark chapter 10, where Jesus called them to him and said, you know that those who are considered the rulers of the Gentiles, think unbelievers, how do they use their authority? How do you use their privileges? They use it to lower it over them and their great ones exercise authority over them but it shall not be so among you but whoever would be great among you must be the servant must be your servant and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all now listen what's his reason for the son of man verse 45 came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. You know, if I could have you memorize any book, any verse from the book of Mark, it would be that one. Mark 10, 45, that the son of man came to be served, not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. You see what we see in the incarnation, Philippians chapter two. Philippians chapter two actually ends with this, starts off with the same motivation. It says, don't consider yourself to be better than your brothers, but in all humility, count one another as more important than yourselves for reason. And he goes into the incarnation for Jesus Christ. Before he came, God did not account, or before he came man, that's a really important distinction, not before he became God, before Jesus became man, he did not count or consider equality of God as something which we can grasp. You know what the difference is between 
us and Jesus in our striving for greatness? Is that our greatness and our ambition is not reflective of reality? Our privileges don't make us actually better than anyone else. Our privileges are just God's free gift. But that's not true of Jesus. You see, the Lord Jesus Christ was actually in himself who he was. He was better than you and me. He was worthy of all the glory. He was worthy of all the praise. He was worthy to have everyone bow down to him. But how did Jesus use that position? He used it to save sinners. You know, we get bothered. Our instincts kind of flare up when we see people who walk around thinking they're better than other people. Doesn't that get under your skin? It also gets under God's skin. We are not as Christians to think that we are better than anyone else. And even if we were, even if we are utterly convinced in our minds that we really are better than someone else, consider Jesus. When he, how did he use his greatness? He used it to save sinners. But then Jesus gets really practical. Don't we like being practical? Jesus says that the step two to be a servant of all, he puts some meat on the bones here. He gives them an illustration. Step three is put your serving into practice by serving the least of all. You want to know, who am I supposed to serve? You learn that you're supposed to serve everyone. Well, who? Who am I to consider and to get down on hands and knees and wash the feet of these people? It may seem odd to you, but Jesus chooses the illustration of a child. He goes, oh, I flipped one page too far from chapter 10. He took a child, verse 36, and he gives us this beautiful picture that you, that you can just, can you not just picture this in your imagination, that Jesus, they entered into a house. Verse 35, when he comes into the house, he asked them about this discussion. In verse 35, he sits down in the house. He calls everyone over to him to teach them this lesson. And he's meeting in someone's home. He goes and picks up their kid, and he puts them in the center of all of them. And then, he's small enough at least, that he, picks, he embraces them, he hugs him, he picks them up in his arms, and says, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. Why is he holding this child? Well, unfortunately, they believed in the ancient world, something that I think that we're slowly becoming more and more to believe as well. You see, in the ancient world, children had no value. They had no significance. They had no rights. They had no privileges that were owed to them. If you had a child and you didn't want it, Yes, there was abortion practices in the Roman world, but often 
you would just take your child and throw them outside the city and let them starve to death. Unwanted children had no value. Children, what Jesus does when he picks them up as an illustration is he shows them the least in society. Those you think have the lowest value, these are the people you're called to serve. In fact, the word child could often be replaced and could be used to indicate one of your servants. It was the bottom of the rung. These are the people that society had rejected and said, if, if there is a social ladder, this is the bottom rung. But Jesus here first picks up this child. Why? It's the same reason in this whole abortion of bait. Why do we care about babies in the womb? It's because every human being has dignity as made in God's image. They have inherent worth, inherent value, and no matter what society says, they have rights. They have value. But you know, that's actually not Jesus's point here. Jesus assumes that in picking up this child and calling them to think about this. He does, and he will later in Mark chapter 10, this will have real significance for how we view children as members of the covenant community. For in chapter 10, he's going to talk to them and look at children and say, to such belongs the kingdom of God. But his point here is to say, whoever you think is least, that's the person you're called to serve. Those are the kinds of people which Jesus Christ died to save, the least in society. Maybe a better thought exercise for us would be to step back and consider who does society forget? Who, when you think of someone that you're better than, who do you think of? Someone of a certain kind of employment? that you think automatically, intuitively, that you're better than them? Or maybe is it the opposite direction? You think, when you think of the scums of society, you think of those people who are politicians in D.C. Or do you think of those who are in prison, who have done sins and deserve to be there? That's the person who Jesus is holding up and saying, who you think is the scum of society, that's who you're called to serve. How humbling is that? How low, humble just means that you're bringing yourself low, that you consider yourself lowly, that you consider other people's needs, wants, as more important than yourself. Humility is considering other people as more important than yourself. Whether or not reality, in the sense of Jesus himself, he humbled himself even though he actually was greater. Whatever you think of yourself, lower yourself to the bottom and be a servant of all. This should affect our witness in the world. This should affect the people that we seek to love and show the love of Christ and call them to repentance and faith, to give them the greatest privilege that we have, which is holding to 
and having salvation in Jesus Christ. There should not be one person that you think is beyond God's grace who is too far gone. 1 Timothy 1.15 says, this is the good news, that Jesus came to save sinners of whom I am the worst. Paul was a murderer of Christians and the gospel went out to him. And when there was a Christian who kind of struggled over whether or not he should share the gospel with Paul, he, refer, he, he had God's word on it that he was to share the gospel even with someone who was seeking to destroy the church. That should be a humbling call for us. Now we're on the final step. The final step to realizing and actually achieving greatness in the kingdom of all, it's not through seeking out your own greatness. It's by becoming a servant, a servant of who? Becoming the servant of the least in society and putting that into practice. But lastly, it's about realizing that it's not all about you. How does this even fit in in verse 38? John, one of those inner circle, the three people that went up on the Mount of Transfiguration was Peter, James, and John. John here, when he says, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me, John says, well, guess what, Jesus? We, we are for you. We are about serving you. Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name. And we tried to stop him, but he was not following us. Doesn't that strike you as odd? John did not say, because he was not following you, Jesus. He said he was not following us. What's the source of their spiritual elitism? They think they're better than everyone else because they have been given this special privilege of apostleship, of representing Jesus. And they've been given Jesus' authority to cast out demons. And you know what? John was probably pretty irked here because earlier in chapter 9, they were just confronted by the Pharisees because they were not able to cast out a demon. And then they come across this guy, this nobody, who literally we don't even know who he is. And he was able to cast out demons. What gives? Jesus says, don't stop him. For one who does a mighty work in my name will not soon be able to afterwards speak evil of me. For the one who is not against us is for us. What he's saying here is that it's not about you, John. It's not whether they follow you or not. You know what the important part, the thing is? Is that they follow the Lord Jesus Christ. That they believe in his name. Now let me just give you the most obvious piece of application that could come out of this text. Evergreen's main goal is not to make more members of Evergreen Community Church. Evergreen's main goal is that the glory of Christ would be emphasized. That people would come to follow the Lord Jesus Christ, not follow Nick Kraus or Anthony Beery or Scott, or Steve Donahue, or Robert Adams, any of the elders here. 
We want to make disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ. And anyone who is about that, anyone who preaches the gospel, we're not going out there to hinder their work. We're not against them. You see, people fall into one of two camps. They're either a follower of Jesus Christ or they are not. They're either a friend of God or they are his enemy. And we want to see people become the friend of God, reconciled to him. Anyone who preaches the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ is our ally in this fight. And if you're concerned that God's using crooked sticks, I am too. This is not a full espousal of everything someone believes. I'm a Presbyterian, not a Baptist. I love my Baptist brothers. I'm a Presbyterian, not a Lutheran. I love Lutherans who hold to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Same goes for any denomination. But I know that God is using at least one crooked stick, and that's me, to preach his gospel and his truth. I'm not the Lord. God is the Lord. He will judge his sheep. They will be held accountable to him. My duty is to be faithful to the great shepherd, Jesus Christ, to be faithful to preach his message. It doesn't mean we have to espouse everything other people do, but it, what it does mean is that if you preach the gospel, there is a certain good level of ecumenism or partnership. You see, if the problem of spiritual elitism, spiritual elitism, there we go, is solved by within our own hearts by becoming a servant of all, Spiritual elitism in the Christian community is solved by realizing that we are all united in one Lord, faithful to amplify the glory of our head, Jesus Christ, the, head of, the only head of the church, not any body part. Realize that it's not all about you. And he gives that last word in verse 41. He says, for truly I say to you, and that phrase there, truly I say to you, is really important. It only occurs 13 times in the book of Mark. So that's a point to really emphasize and heed. What does he say to John here? To further his point, he says, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will, be, will by no means lose his reward. He's saying to him, John, you're concerned about the great works of casting out demons? Let me tell you, someone who does such a little work of handing a cup of water to someone who follows Christ, that person will not lose his reward. We think of greatness in so many different ways. Our, our terms of greatness is so often characterized by the world characterized by maybe an ambition to get us to a certain position where we think of ourselves as getting to where we are in life because we are better than other people. Getting to a position of power, maybe even building monuments to ourselves that we might have a legacy that other people honor. That's not the route to glory in the kingdom of God. The route to glory in the kingdom of God is to seek to honor the King of Kings 
and the Lord of Lords who will reward his people for sincere devotion to him done out of faith. You know what's amazing? Is that Jesus reward, will reward his people for even the smallest acts of service to him and to his body, to people who belong to him. You know what greatness in the kingdom of God looks like? It looks like faithful mothers who are washing the dishes, keeping, managing their household, and seeking to bear witness to Christ to their children to ensure that they're raised in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. It looks like workers of every level in every station of society. Greatness in the kingdom of God looks like the Lord Jesus Christ. Someone who steps down, uses all the privileges that they have to save sinners. You know, everyone in this room has massive, massive privileges in this life. And I'm not talking about wealth, even though we are richer than the rest of the world. Everyone in this room has the privilege of hearing the gospel. Everyone in this room has the privilege of being able just to whip out their smartphone and have the Bible on it. Everyone in this room has the privilege of knowing the Lord their God as their Lord if they'll just turn from their sins and place their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. How have you been using your privileges? How have you been using the privilege of knowing God as your God? Have you been using it just to make your life comfortable? Have you been using it to have enjoy relationship with Jesus Christ for sanctification? You should enjoy it for those things. Those are good things. But if God gave you privileges of such grandeur for free when you were yet a sinner while you yet cursed God, will we not use our privileges to be focused on the advance of the kingdom of God so that sinners might be saved to come to a knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ? Speaking of Philippians, Philippians chapter 1 says something about those other churches. You know, we don't even necessarily have to agree with all that other churches teach in order to be on the same page if they're preaching the gospel. Our motivations, we don't have to even be aware of their motivations, that they are pure in motive. For Paul says in Philippians 1.15 that some do really preach Christ out of envy, out of trying to seek to be great in the kingdom of God. But he's fine with it because Christ's kingdom is advancing. That needs to be our central concern. That needs to be our central purpose. And the central focal point of this purpose, of this gospel, centers upon who Jesus is and the work and mission he came to do which was to die for sinners and bring them redemption through eternal life, which he gives from his resurrection. Let's pray. Heavenly Father,
we confessed we are a privileged people. We are people who are like the disciples, able to follow Jesus every day, to open our Bibles, to read of his works, of his will, how we should live before our God. And yet we often act just like the disciples. We don't understand it, and we are afraid to really ask what it all means of following a Savior who was crucified. Lord, I pray that we would not waste our privileges, that we would not live the, waste the privilege here this morning even of hearing your word preached, but instead that we would turn from our sin, any sin that is in our hearts, and seek to serve the Lord Jesus Christ, not thinking that we're going to gain anything from it, not thinking that by our service, we will make ourselves great in the kingdom of God by being such good servants. Because, Lord, we know our hearts. We fail constantly. We fall short of your glory. There's no one good, no one worthy. No, not one. But, Lord, we want to serve the Lord Jesus Christ because we are thankful. And we want to serve everyone because we are thankful for what Jesus has done. And may our gratitude be this strong motivator. Gratitude in combination with the Holy Spirit's power in our life to live lives that are pleasing to you. Lives defined by service. Lord, we ask all these things in the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. If you'll stand with